Good morning, all. Um, thank you very much for having me with you today. Um, I must say, once stepping into the, to the church here, it's very reminiscent of, I actually grew up in Mansfield Reform Church, which is just down the road from here, very similar brick building, etc. So lots of nostalgic, nostalgic feelings on my behalf. Um, but yeah, I thought before jumping into the sermon, I might give you a little bit more background on myself. Um, probably should turn my clicker on. So, big thing in my life right now, I have a one-year-old son. Um, This is him. I have a photo of me with him, so you know that he's mine, not a stock image from the internet. (laughs) Could have been a child I found on the side of the road, but but it's not. I promise you, he's my son. Um, He's great. Um, Surprisingly tall. Like, he's off off the scale for some reason. I have no idea where that's come from. Um, Really, really great at this particular age. But I've got to say, I'm kind of looking forward for when he gets older because, you know, I'm looking forward to this, this fabled idea I have in my mind of, of having a teaching moment with him. You know, his name's Patrick. Let's say he falls off his bike and I can go to Patrick. You know, when you fall off your bike, you know, you need to, it, this is a, a lesson in life about you need to get back up, get back up and sort of move on from things. Now, I say eventually because with a one-year-old, a little bit difficult to get that message across. Um, he was having a bath the other day, and he decided to plunge his head into the water of the bath, rose up spluttering and crying and everything, immediately proceeded to then try and do it again. Um, when that's kind of your attitude on life, I'm not quite sure if the message is really getting through. So waiting for him to get a little bit older. Um, I'm also a big environmental law nerd, um, both in my personal and professional kind of capacity. I have a few teaching moments in that regard. I have people at work come up to me and ask about you know, why is the regulator doing this particular thing in this project? And I guess I give them a big long spiel about, you know, in 1969, they introduced the National Environmental Protection Act and that came to Australia and it merged with town planning law and this is why where we're at. Eventually their eyes glaze over. Um, I see some of your eyes might be glazing over as well. I'm really passionate about it, um, but I feel like I get something through. Now, I'm not saying all of this to set you up for the fact that Uh, anything I teach you is not going to get through or make your eyes glaze over. It's more because I really want to focus on this question of the teaching moment. Um, And the reason why I think that a teaching moment is an important thing to emphasize is because that's exactly what we've got in this passage today. In actual fact, all throughout, um, particularly sort of Mark 8 to Mark 10, Jesus has all these particular teaching moments where the disciples come up Um, They say something or something happens. Usually they're being a little bit foolish and Jesus goes, all right, I'm going to sit you down and I'm going to teach you something out of this moment um, about discipleship, about the fundamentals of discipleship. And today, as um, we may see from sort of the the sermon, today's lesson is all about humility and service. Now, what's occasioned it? What sort of uh, kicked all of this off? Um, As we saw in the verse, there's kind of two things. So we have James and John, two of the so-called inner three of Jesus' disciples, um, quite possibly actually Jesus' cousins, although that's sort of an aside. They come up to Jesus and they go, look, Jesus, we want positions of authority. We want to sit in your left hand and your right hand. And Jesus, in a roundabout way, basically says, well, no, that's not for you to decide. The other disciples then hear about it and then they step forward and they get all indignant and they get all angry about this thing. They're reading between the lines um, doesn't quite say this explicitly, but I kind of think the reason why the disciples get indignant is not because they're going, oh, James and John, you don't have the rights to sort of claim these things. I think they think that James and John beat them to it and that they probably wanted to actually ask the same thing of Jesus themselves. 
and it leads to all the squabbling and infighting, etc. And Jesus goes, all right, I need to sit you all down and let's have a discussion about authority, humility, service, and what that all means. So that's what I want to focus on today, what that, that lesson, that teaching that came from Jesus out of this. Um, now, a note just on application before we jump into it. Obviously, this was a teaching moment to the 12 disciples in their cultural context 2,000 years ago. But I would like to suggest if all of us look at the world around us, we could probably say the same attitudes of you know, pride, seeking after authority, etc., are going on. They're running rampant. The world has not really moved on that much. In actual fact, I think if we're truly honest with ourselves um, and we look deeply, we can probably see some of these same attitudes within ourselves as well. And that's why I think this, this moment, this teaching moment from Christ applies to us today just as much as it did those thousands of years ago. So I'm going to quickly pray um, to that effect, and then we'll jump into it. Lord, thank you, um, yeah, for your word, and thank you that your word speaks not just to the moment, um, but through to our lives today. Um, I just pray that you can be teaching us today through Jesus' words, Lord, about humility and service and discipleship. Um, yeah, and that you can be um, reaching into our lives and changing us um, as a consequence. Praise things in your name. Amen. All right, so I want to break down this passage, um, the second part of this passage, sort of from verse 42 onwards, the, the actual sort of teaching of Jesus into three things. The first is I think we start with what Jesus says humility isn't, then it says what humility is, and then finally he gives us um, what's the heart of it, what's the core of all of this. So what humility isn't. Now, so verse 42 through to the first part of verse 43 we see, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Okay, so if I was to ask, what, what is Jesus saying that humility isn't, what discipleship isn't, what service isn't, it's really those words have got highlighted about lorded over them, right? I think what Jesus is telling his disciples is that you shouldn't act in a way that is lording it over others. Now, what does that mean? Sort of boiling it down, I think it's if you're in a position of authority or power, it's lording that over others. It's using that, that position to seek your own personal gain, to seek superiority over people around you, to exercise power over people around you for the sake of being able to do that for your own personal interest. Or it's seeking out after positions of power purely so that you can do that. Right? It's seeking power for power's sake. It's exercising power for power's sake authority or, or whatever that might be. And Jesus is saying, well, I don't want you to do this. And in actual fact, he's giving his disciples a little bit of a quiet rebuke in this because he's sort of launching in and saying, you know what you were doing just then about being all indignant and seeking out the power? This is what you're trying to do. You're just trying to lord it over yourselves. You're trying to lord it over each other. He's saying, I don't want you to do that. Now, why? Like, is this just Jesus saying this is probably, you know, a bad way to do things? If we look throughout the whole, um, whole of the Bible, really, um, particularly a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, but even through the New Testament, we actually see continually, time and time again, um, God calling out pride, see, uh, abuse of position, seeking out authority um, for the sake of power, etc. Right? We've got Proverbs, Proverbs 21. It's a big, long diatribe um, about the, the problems of pride and arrogance. 
uh, Zechariah, Ezekiel are full of all of these prophecies against uh, the abusive leaders of Israel, um, against them abusing their authority over the people around them. Um, we even have Jesus um, has the parable of um, the servant in Luke 12, where the master goes away, puts a servant in charge, and he immediately uses it to abuse his fellow servants. So we've got all of these different sort of warnings, um, analogies, stories throughout the Bible. And when, what they all boil down to is people who are seeking out that which is not their own, namely trying to get superiority over their fellow humans. The crux of what lording it over others is, is to basically say, I want to be in a position where I can make myself superior to you. Um, I want to claim that I am superior over to you. I want to act in a way that I'm superior, superior to you. And that's the default position in the world. That's what Jesus is calling out, you know, the leaders of the Gentiles and stuff. But he's saying that shouldn't be the default position of you as disciples because it's sinful, because it's wrong, because it's not the way things are meant to be. So Jesus, in calling out his disciples for this kind of attitude, is actually getting to the heart of you know, their sinful nature, their, their sinful desire to seek superiority over each other. And he's saying, this is not what you should be doing. This is what humility isn't. Um, the other thing to note here, that the last sort of words I've got highlighted, the not so with you. The, the language there is really intentional, I think, of Jesus to sort of say, not only do I want you to avoid this sinful way of doing things, this sinful pattern of life, but I want you to uh, be distinct, both as individual disciples as well as my collective group of disciples. Um, he wants us as Christians and disciples today, as well as us as a church, to be seen as distinct from the way that the world does things. He doesn't want us to fall into this default position of everyone squabbling in and seeking superiority over each other. So if that's what humility isn't, then we need to ask the question, what humility is? And this is the next part of the verse. All right, so Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, these words servant and slave, um, they're kind of technical terms. They, they represent sort of the lowest classes within Roman society, um, people right, right at the bottom. So without sort of pushing the text too far, you could potentially actually even reword this a little bit to say, those who want to be great must be low, and those who want to be first must be last. And in putting it that way, I think many of us who have been Christians for a really long time, have read over this, this verse um, many, many times, may, you know, sort of completely sort of, you know, read this, move on, gloss over it, and not really comprehend that this seems like a pretty wacky thing to say. Like, I'm hoping there's somebody out there who's going, what's, what's Jesus talking about? To be great, you need to be low. To be first, you must be last. And it's not like Jesus woke up on the wrong side of bed, bed the morning that he gave this particular talk. Like, Jesus uses this language multiple times throughout his ministry. Just a couple of chapters earlier, we see Jesus saying, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will save it. And, you, and, like, if you think about that, it's like, well, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to save my life or am I trying to lose my life? Um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't seek after material health and well-being and um, all of that kind of stuff. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given to you. So it's like, well, am I seeking the kingdom of God or am I seeking material wealth and well-being through the, the kingdom of God? Like, there's these contradictions that Jesus is putting there 
And they're not just nice, flowery, poetic kind of statements that sort of make us think and then move on. I think Jesus is intentionally using this language because he wants to draw us into the issue and because it's actually the best way to communicate what he's trying to communicate. Jesus could have said, right, if the problem is he wants to warn his disciples away and lording it over others, seeking power for power's sake, he could have said, all right, instead, you must all be servants and slaves, full stop. And I think we so often read this verse as if that's what he's trying to say, as if he's just trying to say, avoid authority, just go straight to, you know, being, being a servant, servant of all, full stop, service for service sake. But if that's what he was going to say, that's what he would have said, but he didn't. He said, if you want to be great, you need to be low. If you want to be first, you need to be last. So what's he trying to say? What's, what's the difference going on here? And I think the key is actually in the next verse where Jesus uses himself as the example of this kind of, this kind of living. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And if we look at the ministry of Jesus, the key thing to note is that Jesus obviously went around um, with a key part of his ministry being to proclaim the word of God, to re- sort of reveal that he is the Messiah, um, and ultimately to die on the cross for the salvation of everybody. Now, when you see Jesus' ministry, you see Jesus go through, there's a number of these key moments where Jesus, you know, had the opportunity maybe to provide additional service to somebody or serve in a particular way, and he chose not to so that he could guard his ministry of being able to proclaim the word of God and ultimately die for the salvation of the world, all right? So Jesus was really intentional about guarding his ministry and making sure that he was serving in the way that God had set out for him to serve. So I think what he's trying to say here is that, he, that service as a Christian, humility as a Christian, is about service within a purpose, service with a purpose. Or we'll put it another way, it's serving God and others in the way that God has called us to serve. Right? So it's not serving for the sake of serving, it's not power for the sake of power, it's serving the purpose that serves God and others in the way that God has called us to. Now the question is, well, how does that make us great? How does that make us first? How does this kind of service, you know, meet this kind of seeming contradiction? And I think when you think of it in terms of service as purpose, it kind of starts coming together a little bit because we often might default to thinking that the value of somebody is the service that they do, right? If the service is really, if the service is like this really high sort of level, then the person automatically becomes this, this great person. In actual fact, I think what's going, what actually is the case is that the greatness of somebody is who they're serving rather than the service particularly that they're doing. If the way you are serving is purely self-seeking, you can never be greater than yourself because you're just serving yourself. Whereas if the service that you're doing is for God or for some greater good, it's automatically going to be um, able to raise you above where it is that you are in and of yourself, right? When that service is not about yourself, when it's pure and sort of unadulterated without self-interest, it automatically makes the service greater, which can then actually make the person greater. I'll give you an analogy that kind of might help put this together. Let's say I was seeking out after higher office, let's say I became prime minister. Um, I doubt that's going to happen, but let's just, in the analogy, say I become prime minister. There's two ways I could do this. I could live out my time, however many terms I get as prime minister, really just trying to push forward my own personal agenda, 
Um, I'm doing it for the pay. I'm doing it to set myself up so I've got a nice cushy board position um, once I've sort of stepped down as prime minister in however many terms, right? And I could do that for the full time, um, and it's really obvious to everybody that that's what I'm doing. I'm really just serving myself. Or let's say I actually really tirelessly work to serve the people of Australia. Um, let's say, like, I might make decisions people don't necessarily like, but it's clear that I'm trying to do the best for the people of Australia. Now, in that situation, the service is exactly the same, but who is being served is different. In one, I'm serving myself, in the other, I'm serving the people of Australia. And I can say we can probably all agree the Prime Minister who serves like the latter, and that may be a completely theoretical situation, but the more someone is like that, the greater that person is going to be in the estimation of, the, of society and in our memory as sort of things move on. That's why we have such a great... Um, I think it's why we have such a great estimation of a lot of wartime leaders. Now, these are the, the so-called big three, um, the leaders of the Allied powers during World War II. Let's leave Stalin to one side for, for now. There's a bit more of a controversy associated with him, obviously. But if you think of like Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, really well uh, received in history because of their service during the war. They were utterly dedicated to saving their nations, keeping their nations going and winning the war. There was the sense of self dropped out and they were raised up to, in their estimation because of that, um, that commitment to the cause, etc. In fact, Churchill actually lost the next election after the war um, but is still seen as such a great person because of the great work that he did during the war. Um, so I think that's what Jesus means when he's talking about being great by being low, being first by being last. So I'm hoping there's some cogs sticking over your head in terms of like application, evaluation, etc. But I just want to give two scenarios, two bits of application that might sort of help um, piece this together a little bit more. Um, as I was sort of thinking through this, the first thing that immediately sp um, sort of sprung to mind was the idea of, you know, how you might regard things from a work context. Let's say somebody's offered a, offered a promotion at work, uh, means they're going to get more pay, they're going to sort of have a bit more authority, a bit more prestige, etc. Now, I'd say majority of the time, the evaluation criteria that we use as to do I take this promotion or not is really based off those things that I just mentioned. Right? Is the pay going to be good? Am I going to sort of get into a better position? Am I okay with sort of the payoff in terms of the work that I'm doing versus the pay and, and the commitment and, and all that kind of stuff? But how many people do you think stop and go, well, is this the way that I can best be serving God and others? Um, I'm not to say that people don't consider that, but you know, if I look deeply into my own heart, I know that that's probably not the first question that comes to mind. And the idea that I would actually decline a promotion because it means I, it doesn't help me best serve God and others is not something that would naturally come to me. But that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. In actual fact, if I put it even more strongly, how often do you think we sort of sit down and go, maybe I should take a demotion at work. Maybe I should quit my current job, go to a less paid job because that's how I can better serve God and others. <coughs> I think we would often you know, not even necessarily have that come into our mind because we just think, well, you know, the, the thing to do is to sort of work up the chain, get more pay, get more power, etc. Jesus is calling his, um, his disciples, he's calling us um, to reconsider that way of valuing things. And just thinking about this, even in like within a, you know, coming to the end of your working life sort of thing, there's this really great um, 
lesson that I've sort of picked up from a pastor in America called John Piper. Many of you may have heard of John Piper. He's in his, I believe he's in his 70s, maybe even coming to his 80s. And he and his wife every single year actually sit down and go, is God calling us into the mission field this year? Even into his 70s, his 80s, etc. He's asking himself that question every single year because he wants to know what's the service that God is calling him to. Um, second analogy I've got there, uh, ministry positions within a church. Imagine a scenario where you might have three elders um, who are up for nomination um, and you have to pick one of them. I know that's not how things work nowadays, but let's just say you have to, for the purpose of the analogy, you have to pick one. We've got one guy, well-connected. Um, he's been in the church. His family's been in the church for generations. Um, he's not actually that involved in terms of ministry in the church, but that's because he's, he's the CEO of a business outside, um, which means he earns a lot of money. He can give a lot of money to the church. He's got a lot of good political um, connections, good standing, etc. You've got another guy, um, and he's the person who just serves in every single ministry. He's always up the front. Um, you can see him in every single thing, every single thing that he does. Um, he's always in, in all of the ministries. <coughs> and then you've got a third guy involved really like from a sort of a, you know, not that well-paid sort of position, um, not sort of super prominent, but still prominent enough within the church. Serves in a couple of ministries. Um, and has served for years and years in these ministries. They're a little bit behind the scene, but is really dedicated to the role. Now, I would say if I was an, someone from outside the church looking in, I would probably pick candidate number one. You know, he's got the political power, he's got the connections, he's got the money, etc. Um, I might also pick the, the guy, the second guy, because, you know, he's really prominent. Everyone sees him. He's in every single ministry. But in actual fact, I think the kind of person that Jesus is talking about here is really that third guy, because he's actually committed himself to, the, to a couple of ministries that Jesus is calling him to, and he's just doing those humbly without any sense of recognition. I think the problem sometimes with the person in the second category is that often they're actually serving in all these ministries just so they can be seen to be serving in all of these ministries. Not to say that that's necessarily the case, but um, yeah, I think we would often, within the church, think A or B, maybe not so much C, when Jesus might actually be calling us towards, towards sort of that third person. All right, so the last point in all of this is you know, what's sitting at the heart of all of this? <coughs> Why is all this humility and service and everything so important? Why is Jesus making such a big deal of it? And this is in the very last verse where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there's two things here. The first, put really simply, is that a servant is not greater than his master. Um, Jesus says that elsewhere. What he's sort of saying is that if he is living this life of being last so that he can be serving the purpose of God, um, of being, you know, a servant and a slave, etc., then how can we as followers of Jesus be doing anything less than that, right? Jesus didn't just say, I came to serve so that you may not have to serve. He's saying, I came to serve and I've set the example, I've set the model for you to then go and follow after within your own Christian life. This is the heart, this is a heart um, of discipleship, is this life of service. And even more so, if we sort of uh, look at the service that Jesus did, he gave his entire existence, he gave his entire life up for us. We can probably, you know, if we sort of evaluate our service, not that we're trying to, we can ever meet to his, but it should encourage and spur us on to continual sort of service over the course of our life. <coughs> so, the other thing here, 
is the second part of the verse where he says, but he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, when we think of the word ransom, I think a lot of us probably think, you know, there's been a kidnapping, the person calls on the phone, they've got that funny muffled voice saying, hand over the, hand over the ransom and I'll, I'll free the, the prisoner or whatever. That's one use of the word ransom. But a ransom is also, let's say some countries are at war or they're at political, um, sort of political enemies, and a ransom can actually be an exchange of prisoners, an exchange of hostages. Um, you might have a war, a war criminal and they're, well, not so much a war criminal, but a, a prisoner of war, um, and they do an exchange from, from the one nation to the other, one person for the other, or it might be one for two, one for three, depending on how much of a value the particular um, prisoners of war, political prisoners that they have. Now, that's a ransom. Those lives have been given as ransom for each other. That, I think, is kind of the, the language Jesus might be thinking of here. Because Jesus is saying that he gave his life as a ransom, his life as an exchange to buy back those who were prisoners to sin and judgment, namely us. Now, Jesus gives his life up in exchange for our lives being set free. And the reason why we are the prisoners to begin with is because as we talked about the sinful nature, our natural inclination to seek out superiority over others, seek out things that aren't of God, that sets us at odds with God. It sets us as prisoners under the judgment of God. So for us to be free, Jesus is giving himself as the ransom so that we can be set free from prison um, that we were held in. But not only that, Jesus actually takes our sin onto himself so that we can have his righteousness. <coughs> um, there's a really great movie series that I enjoy, uh, Christopher Nolan Batman series. I'm not sure if it's, it's everyone's cup of tea within this room. Um, but one of the things I really love within this series is that it portrays Batman as somebody who's willing to be seen as the outcast of his society as long as he can achieve a greater good, a greater outcome for his society. He's willing to be seen as the villain if it means that it spurs everybody else onto greater, to greater things. And there's a character in the third movie, um, Detective Gordon, who says, describes Batman. He says, in, in that moment, I hope you have a friend like I did, being Batman, to plunge their hands into the filth so that you can keep your hands clean. Now, this is exactly what happens with Jesus and the ransom um, that he pays for us. Jesus not only plunged his hand into the filth of our sin, but he took the filth of our sin onto himself. He became sin himself so that we could actually have clean hands. We read in Galatians uh, 3.13 about how Jesus became a curse. He became an anathema. He became... Um, yeah, just this um, stench in the heart and the eyes of God um, for our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see how he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the ransom that's going on. This is the great exchange. This is the, um, yeah, the heart of what it is that Jesus came to do. And the ultimate question of application, I think really out of all of this verse, is that where do we stand with this exchange? Have we come to Christ to follow after Christ, to live in the righteousness of Christ, um, to put our sin onto Christ so that we can live that life of, of freedom, following after him? Because ultimately, that's the first step at all to moving away from this default sinful position um, that the world follows. And it's the thing that Christ has done so that we can then live in that. So it's a question to be asking in your own hearts as to where you stand with this. And if you want to be part of this, um, there's no reason why you can't call upon Christ today in that regard. 
Now, as I come to close, um, the very last thing I wanted to raise is a passage from second, sorry, from Philippians chapter two. Many of you may have been thinking about it as sort of we're thinking about the service of Christ. Um, I even noticed in um, the, the Charles Wesley sermon, uh, hymn that we sung earlier, the second verse is actually really based in this um, part of Philippians. And it's almost like Paul has taken this teaching from Jesus and the early churches turns it into this great hymn about the service of Jesus, um, how Jesus has become low and therefore become great, how he became last and therefore has become first. And Paul uses it as a way to encourage us, um, to lift us up, to, to call us, um, to be living a greater life as disciples. So I will finish with that. Um, so Second Philippians, sorry, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I just pray that, yeah, these words of Jesus, this teaching moment from Jesus, echoed so strongly by Paul, um, would guide us um, in our discipleship journeys from here on. So thank you.